Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. How's it going, buddy? Going well. Going well. Good. So today we're talking about democratic socialism. And a few pieces um, came out back to back, two days back to back, both critiquing and asking questions about what democratic socialism is and whether it's a good idea for the left or the country to actually put its interest, energy, and political support behind uh, these ideas. So the problem here is that one critique asked the question, is democratic socialism a problem because it's too democratic? That would be Conrad Friedersdorf in The Atlantic. And the next day, a piece came out by Sherry Berman, which basically asks, is democratic socialism democratic enough? Her title is Democratic Socialists are Conquering the Left, but do they believe in democracy? And that's the one we're going to start with. So we'll take each one side by side, try to see the points they're making, and evaluate whether democratic socialism is too democratic, not democratic enough, or what the deal is and why people should think uh, the arguments are legitimate or not that are posed. Okay, does that sound good? All right. All right. Let's dig in. So first, Sherry Berman. Uh, so I don't know what you thought, Ryan, but it seems like her piece does like a fine job of summarizing certain historical um, genealogies, if you will, of uh, the, the left and the socialist left. Uh, she has a nice little paragraph that says as follows, quote, Democratic socialism and social democracy originated in splits within the international socialist movement over how to deal with Marxism's failures. Central to Marxism was the belief that capitalism's internal contradictions would inevitably lead to its demise. By the late 19th century, however, rather than collapsing, capitalism was showing great resiliency. Fair enough. And so she goes in and talks about the different camps and then shifts wildly to applying that discussion to contemporary politics. And I think that's where um, the problem is in her piece. Yeah, right. So it's a, a decently good s summary of the kind of disputes between the Lenin, um, you know, vanguardist uh, wing of the socialist movement and the sort of Edward Bernstein reformist um, move within the socialist uh, movement. The idea that, you know, you you need to have a do you need to have a revolutionary uh, event or a revolutionary minority where you overthrow the state and put in a new institution? Or do you just sort of do like parliamentary democracy and like build up your uh, your, you know, kind of coalition and try to put through policy reforms that will sort of achieve the socialist objectives in that way? And that was a real debate, for certainly back in the day, especially after the vanguardists won, um, you know, in Russia and set up a kind of you know dictatorship. I think what sounds very weird to modern eye, modern ears rather is is you know she she says that the Leninist like that tradition is democratic socialist and the Bernstein tradition is social democratic, and like. That is just not really, I mean, even in the time, that really wasn't the, the correct, you know. I mean, first of all, the, the Leninist Party was called a Social Democratic Party, 
uh, up until like the middle of the revolution and then it became a communist party but also like they were just as a descriptive matter not democrats they were revolutionaries who you know eschewed uh de- democratic you know sort of parliamentary government to you know take over a country as a minority group absolutely yeah and i think descriptive is a good focus uh what because it can get really confusing when we're talking about the terms people are using, uh, especially out of historical context. And as we've talked about before, I mean, we have Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. It seems like he's a, a social Democrat descriptively. So that can get muddled really quickly. Um, but yeah, the taxonomy she presents is, is problematic, uh, as evidently seen in her description of Joe Biden as a social Democrat. So I, th- I think <laughs> we can be, <laughs> we can be wary of the terms and, and their applications here. Um, yeah, but what, right. What, you, you, you have, I mean, she tries to, she tries to tie, you know, say that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and DSA are sort of part of this tradition that goes back to Lenin. And that's just like not at all true. And and it also, you know, as you say, describes a guy who is just like a hardcore neoliberal capitalist, Joe Biden, as being a social Democrat. And that's just like preposterous. You know, this is senator credit card industry. You know, like, Absolutely. Give me a break. I, I mean, the, if anything, the social Democrats want to save capitalism because they acknowledge the dangers of unfettered capitalism to democracy. And so I think that it's a really important distinction. Uh, While neoliberals and social democrats can both be seen as uh, not radical in in the sense that they want to save capitalism and maybe call themselves capitalists, uh, the neoliberals think that the more the the operation of the markets uh, are given power apart from state regulation and apart from uh, democratic processes, the better. And social Democrats clearly think that's uh, not the case. So uh, I think we can say that apart from both of those, the democratic socialists uh, actually want, so this gets to the crux of the the question, actually want democratic processes to counterbalance um, the power of uh, markets and, and, and business interests. So she doesn't get to that very quickly at all and it's almost almost goes unaddressed until until near the, near the end yeah yeah and I, and I mean it just I think kind of shows the relative uselessness of focusing on these sort of uh, historical questions in uh, trying to sort of outline the nature of today's current political formations like you look at a like an org chart of american left parties over the years and there's been about 300 of them you know just like sort of splitting and reforming and dying out and starting up and you know it's like you could sort of weave all the various internecine feuds that outlined all those things but at the end of the day it's like not that important what they were you know it's just like more like the kind of broad strokes picture like stuff that people are calling for now that I think is more, you know, important. That's, that's the right focus to, to borrow again from uh, Wittgenstein words are defined in context of their use and the different uses have uh, a family resemblance to each other. The same way that different family members have um, not identical uh, looks, but, but very uh, overlapping genetic similarities. So, uh, so too, there are like, contested words that have, you know, 
resemblances in how they're used in different places, but the context is key. So let's focus on right now, what are DSA candidates? What is DSA pushing for? Um, How, in the context of how our political economy and uh, American Republic today, should they be considered? And what are they after, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, especially when you're talking about this historical stuff, like no one in DSA is a vanguardist or maybe there are some people who claim to be so but you know there there is no serious vanguardist movement that wants to overthrow the state you know some small minority and in fact i think the entire idea of that being a viable way to achieve anything in a country like the united states has been comprehensively discredited you know you you can't you know the way the way the russian uh communists won power was by the the state fell apart you know like that was the the key uh condition the the proximate the proximate cause yes exactly like you cannot have a revolution on in a country where the state has a a decent grip on the military and the united states government unquestionably has that and as long as you don't have it you know, I mean, and, and Trotsky in his book about the revolution is absolutely clear about this. You know, the way that they got uh, the revolution to happen was, you know, by basically the the uh, provisional government just throwing away hundreds of thousands of lives in the Eastern Front, you know, making this attack that they were completely unprepared to uh, make, you know, the 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 provisional government, you know, attacking the Germans and the Aus- uh, Austrians, what, and some of their, like, battalions didn't even have any guns. And so <laughs> there was a massive discontent among the army, and, you know, communist propagandists were in there saying, ah, you know, join up with us. Like, the United States is nowhere near that sort of a situation. And so every every meaningful socialist, you know, a few completely powerless online people aside, is committed to formal democracy in some sense you know absolutely you can't fight you know the the 101st airborne it's out it's a it's a silly idea and indeed and even if you look at how uh, a dsa meeting is run um it's it's very democratic in in the sense of direct democracy as much as possible yeah uh, incorporating incorporating as many voices into the process um and so, you know, if, if, if how the actual organizations run themselves is indicative of their overall political philosophy, uh, and that's that would a, certainly say. That's, yeah. again, different from Lenin's idea of democratic centralism, you know, where you have like a vote theoretically on the party line and then everyone has to stick to it. TSA is not at all like that. It's much more of a big tent organization. You know, you can believe all, all manner of stuff. And there are people who have, you know, sort of party platforms within DSA try to argue for this or that. Yeah, lots of anarchists, a uh, whole host of, I mean, you have some people that uh, might even self-identify as more liberal or social democratic. It's a pretty big tent. And, that you know, that might suggest there is this lack of vision. So uh, this critique that she offers, democratic socialism's weaknesses lie, she writes, um, as Bernstein charged more than a century ago, in the abstractness of its vision and its lack of pragmatism. That's... A funny charge, given the other parties we have today and, you know, the neoliberals and the Democratic and Republican parties and what they're offering. 
what exactly are their visions? How pragmatic are they? What does that mean, right? I mean, it seems it seems especially strange given that the very clear demands that, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made in her primary run uh, vision, how about Medicare for all? How about, you know, housing is a, is a human right? How about climate change is needing to be addressed? All these issues that she ran on seem to be, if nothing else, extremely clear and very um, pragmatic. It depends what, what's meant by that. It's, it's, it's certainly pragmatic if it can get popular support and get implemented. And she kicked the crap out of her competitor, who's a 10-term incumbent. So I, I don't know. That, that charge of lack of vision and lack of pragmatism seems a strange charge. Yeah, it's, it's especially, you know, you look at how most argumentation around putting forward various leftist proposals goes. Um, the, the By far the commonest way to, to argue for something is to point to a other country that already has it. Um, you know, you, you look at uh, Canada or the UK or Finland or Sweden or Norway or Austria or, you know, and be like, their healthcare system is better than what we have. We should just follow in their footsteps and do a sort of, you know, in, in a way that is much more pragmatic than something like Obamacare, which is uh, uh, convoluted. In a sense, a kind of utopian idea because, you know, you, you like Switzerland's um, healthcare system is sort of superficially similar to that. But uh, not only does it have a lot more aggressive cost controls and regulation of insurance companies in, in it, um, it's also that type of thing is not the, the sort of commonest way to go about, um, you know, doing health insurance. And especially when you look at the type of programs that the United States government tends to be good at, you know, it's like, does the United States government run really complicated things very well? Or is it better to just do like big and simple, like Social Security, which is a big, big building writing checks all day long? Um, and yeah, you know, it's just kind of like what's it, in a strictly, you know, uh, process neutral uh sort of standard by that standard medicare for all is much more pragmatic than obamacare um absolutely it's you know this we're talking about what works what doesn't work and so that yeah i mean peculiar criticism to say the least the funny thing about that is it it's got to be a special use talking about context and the meaning of words is their use special use of vision and pragmatism here because first of all vision by definition is abstract right yeah. if you're talking <laughs> i mean that's the whole point of vision is to be like a principle or an image or an ideal something towards which you can then compare concrete specific particulars to see if it lives up to that ideal or that image. Uh, so first of all, it's strange to say that something uh, that a vision is abstract is a negative thing. That's part of what a vision is, uh, in a sense. You can yeah. have, I guess, a, a concrete image, but it, it's got to be a broad thing. So to say that we want to help people, to say that we want the poor uh, not to be poor, to say that we want to have... Um, 
people living and flourishing no matter where they come from. We want to, all these principles are part of a vision that is sure it's abstract, but that's good. And we can readily match that ideal with particulars and say, hey, does this fit into the vision or not? I mean, I, I think, you know, funnily enough, every Fortune 500 company has a vision statement probably, you know, or a mission statement yeah. where, where this is the vision for the company. And, and, you know, are these policies fitting into our vision? So, um, so that's weird. But then pragmatism only makes sense here if, if what she means by pragmatism is small board change, something that isn't really trying to do much, I think. I think that's what she – because otherwise, as you say – Medicare for all is a lot more pragmatic and practical than the convoluted utopian uh, ways that the health insurance and um, healthcare system are, are regulated in this country. Yeah, and this is even more clear when you look at climate change. So what did dem- pragmatic, capital P, pragmatic Democrats do with climate policy when they had big majorities in both houses of Congress in 2009 and 2010? Well, they tried to pass a really crappy cap-and-trade bill, which is sort of like Obamacare uh, in terms of, like, everything's going through markets, the objectives are not very stringent, what they're trying to do, and um, it ran into immediate opposition, and they gave up, and it didn't pass. Um, Then, I mean, (laughs) like, four years later, I think, Obama, the EPA finally got going on a regulatory response to climate change, which was sort of like force the, you know, power companies to make various, uh, you know, types of um, reforms, you know, to like cut the emissions over time and like boost up the solar energy. There's actually a bunch of of, uh, green subsidies in the stimulus package as well. So, you know, it's like the, not, not nothing, but it was late and it was not very big. And this is, you know, people talk about that as if it was pragmatic. But if you're looking at, you know, take the example of like uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, You know, after like we were attacked by the Japanese, Nazis declare war on the United States. uh, The question then is not, you know. Uh, how you know do, we're gonna have to ramp up our tank production by by twenty five percent a year, and that's just unrealistic. Like we, you know what, you know, we I, that, must respond in a very measured, careful, incremental way here. And yeah, are we sure? sure we're getting our our, our best uh, cost benefit out of out of our aluminum here? And that's another great point because uh, proper assessments of risk don't necessarily mean you do something small or incremental. Yeah. Right? It depends. It, it depends, you know, what it is to which you're responding and, and what, exactly. what that requires. Yeah. And so with, the, with climate change, like if you looked at the science and you'd really digested that politically, what you do is the biggest thing you possibly can as quickly as you can, you know, do it now, you know, get those emissions down, do it fast you know because like miami is going to be 100 miles out to sea in 50 years possibly you know that's right like it's right. it's there's always uncertainty when you're talking about the future but like the the computer models and the science and all of that is is fairly clear at the on this point um you know what what we need is 
is big and huge and we need it yesterday. And yeah, as, as, as Machiavelli wrote, there is a correlation between how soon you have the diagnosis and what the treatment options are. So the more uh, foresight you have about what the problems are going to be, the more difficult the diagnosis, but the easier the remedy. You, can, you have lots of options. You can do any number of things. The later, and this is, again, could be a cancer diagnosis as, as the analogy, the, the later that you wait to properly diagnose and treat, the easier it is to see what's required, but the harder it is to actually treat. Well, I, I feel like the cancer is advancing pretty aggressively here, and we know what's needed, and we're still talking about really rinky-dinky options instead of aggressive, aggressive treatment for things that we know need to be attacked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the thing, um, you know, to go back to the war analogy, um, I was stealing this from from David Roberts, but you often hear, you know, these sort of centrist people complaining about, oh, do we, you know, are we really sure that climate change are we, is is this uh, going to be this bad? You know, we need to have all of, all of our ducks in a row with the science down to like nine decimal places. And it's like, you know, if if the Nazis are marching on your city, you know, you don't need to know the thread count of their uniforms to know that, like, what you need to do is fight as hard as you possibly can, you know, just Spot mobilize on. every resource that you can you can get your hands on and not fiddle around, you know, making useless quibbles about stuff and wasting time. Yes. Yes, each each to her own weapons. Uh, it's, it's to paraphrase a quote by uh, Odysseus Elitis, a Greek Nobel laureate of the 20th century. Uh, yeah. Each each to her own weapons, and just fight, just go for it. Um, that is uh, that's absolutely right. I, I think the the point here is that if pragmatism is properly evaluating risk and making decisions in response, uh, you know the the safer you are by not acting, the more that it's true that you should proceed carefully, slowly. Um, but there is this, uh, this is such a, a classically liberal problem. I mean, Carl Schmitt talked about famously in political theology, how if, if liberals were deciding Christ or Barabbas, they would hold a, a meeting and try to figure it out. They would you know, have a whole set of procedures. They'd need to sit down and think through what to do. And, uh, and there is a lot of truth there. There, there is this kind of epistemological, um, skepticism that leads to perpetual processes and failure to have the courage of convictions to act when necessary. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, again, that's a that's a critique that that I guess maybe the democratic socialists should embrace if if that's what we mean by pragmatism. Yeah, the left, the far left, the socialists in America and so forth are really the only ones with a who, who are pragmatic about climate change. You know that. Uh, uh, Tom Perez just reversed the previous um, uh, Democratic National Committee ban on taking donations from fossil fuel PACs, you know, political action committee uh, money. It's just Cor unbelievable. I mean, just how how indefensible could that, what other possible reason could there be than a pernicious one for that? That's just amazing. Yeah, it's it's straight up corruption. That's all it is. And, and it's, it's a as every big as bit every bit as big a threat to the future of the world society including the united states as the science denialism in the republican party and you want to talk about pragmatism you know what is that but just like a kind of mixture of soft you know corruption and 
and unpatriotic betrayal, you know, just horrible. It's it's so terrible that I, you know, on the one hand, I understand part of what she says and others say that there are some DSA members who are uh, saying that even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are are not true lefties. And there's some of that no true lefty um, stuff going on. And that gets lumped in with this attack on Democrats and, and this and this notion that, well, these Democratic socialists they uh, they don't see clearly that the Republican Party is really the danger to to our country and to the globe, and really they should just get on board and, and back the Democratic Party all the time, and, and that's just ridiculous because if there's going to be a successful movement that addresses these problems, it has to be one that critiques the Democratic Party and, and critiques the contributions to corruption and um, lack of solutions for all these you know, terrible crises that we're having to deal with. Yeah, that's right. If, if not, uh, not only because they, um, you know, have been a only somewhat less eager participant in the political corruption of the neoliberal decades, um, also because, you know, they lost to Trump. <laughs> like, we got we to change something up here, whatever we're doing. It's not working. Yeah, and the other parallel I would, I would uh, draw there is that for the same reason that, yes, it matters what's going on all around the world, but being citizens of the United States, we have political obligations and political power to change our government and our policies where other than our foreign policy that we enact globally, we don't have that same power or responsibility. I guess you could say we have responsibility as human beings, broadly speaking, but really the the more proximate place where we can uh, contest power and change things is in the United States. So similarly, lefties need to change the left-wing parties if you believe in electoral politics. So the Democratic Party is where most of the energy should be focused because that's what we need to change and where we have the power to change because it is the party that represents the left. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think that's a good spot to turn to um, Mr. Friedersdorf. Sure. I, you know, before we do that, I want to just read one quote and we can, t- you know, take over these questions into his piece as well, because um, they, they, I think they come up in this broader question of what democratic socialism is. Sure. Uh, but just really briefly, if you don't mind, um, she, she, she writes, if democratic socialism is to revitalize the democratic party, it should have answers to the following questions, right? What does socialism actually mean? If abolishing capitalism is, is the goal, how are growth, efficiency, innovation um, to be achieved? And then she continues, is democracy even one flawed a means or an end? This is going to be relevant. Will democratic socialists prioritize democracy if the votes for a, quote, socialist future, unquote, do not materialize? Will they eschew the compromises and alliances necessary to protect democracy? Um, so I think that's a good set of questions to kind of carry over as we talk about, uh, Connor's piece. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you want to recap Connor's piece for us? It's, it's called, let's see, he wrote democratic socialism threatens minorities is the title. Nothing better protects victims of bigotry than a system where they can pursue their needs and wants outside the realm of popular control. What uh, 
what did you think of his his overall piece here? What was he getting at? Yeah, so I guess just you know just to emphasize that that this this critique of of us of socialism is is the exact opposite one of what we've just been discussing over the last uh, few minutes. Um, he's worried that actually democracy is bad. Uh, it can be bad, you know, basically kind of tying into a, the long American tradition, especially among conservatives and libertarians of, of fear of mob rule uh, and, you know, expropriating uh, rich people mainly. But in this case, he's worried about supposedly the danger to minorities. And so he quotes this Jacobin article, which uh, is talking about basically economic democracy. And it says, quote, this democratization could be achieved through a number of concrete institutions, grassroots state planning agencies, workers' cooperatives, participatory boards. What is essential is that the people have real, not just formal, democratic control over society's wealth. And so from there, like, Connor spins out this nightmare dystopia of worker cooperatives who make like, like he's sort of imagining Soviet style planning agencies, which like, which like set production targets for every single commodity in the economy. And, um, you know, he, he's like, ah, popular control is finally realized. So how popular is Islam? How many Muslim prayer rugs would the democratic majority of workers vote to produce? How many Qurans? How many headscarves? How much halal meat would be slaughtered? And so on and so on. Um, yeah, this this is an an amazing vision of what he takes democratic socialism to want. It's uh, it's something. Yeah, yeah, and he 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 counterposes this with a with a um, you know an alternative vision. He says, "quote Under capitalism, the mere existence of buyers reliably gives rise to suppliers," uh, and you know. So <laughs> I guess just to start off here, uh, there's a big missing piece of the equation, uh, the existence of buyers. Uh, there is another necessary ingredient in order to be able to purchase I can't. Something. I can't figure out what it is. No, no, no. Wait, wait. I, I'm a buyer. I show up. What do I need? I need something. I can't. Rem- <laughs> what is it? Uh, give me that TV. Just give it. Give me the TV. Why yeah. don't I just. I'm, I'm a buyer. I'm forgetting it. I'm a buyer. I'm a but you're a seller. I'm a buyer. What else do we need? <laughs> yeah, and this this may come as a shock to Connor, but uh, sometimes there are people who don't have money. It's uh, people you might call them poor people. Uh, in ca- capitalist societies, have poor people in them, and if uh, so, buyers need money in order to oh uh, that's what it is i knew i was forgetting it uh yeah i know it's just this is this is some graduate level stuff here um <laughs> but but suppose let's let's suppose let's suppose we grant that people have money that that everybody's got some money and uh you um you you know you want to take your money and you want to go get something say you want to rent a house well, you know, you could imagine a situation as these Soviet planning boards are often like kind of incompetent at allocating stuff. Um, you could also imagine uh, a scenario in which a capitalist would not want to serve particular communities. 
uh, <laughs> and use their control over the means of production to discriminate against people. So let's just look back into the distant past of 1973. <laughs> Uh, when the first time Donald Trump was fe featured in the New York Times, reading from a Huffington Post story about this, um, his family's real estate company, Trump Management Corporation, was sued by the Justice Department for alleged racial discrimination. Um, the case alleged that the Trump Management Corporation had discriminated against blacks who wished to rent apartments in Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. The government charged the corporation with quoting different rental terms and conditions to blacks and whites and lying to blacks that apartments were not available, according to reports of a lawsuit. So here you have buyers and they have money, but you're not getting the the, the, the service through through these great capitalist markets are dysfunctional because capitalists have a lot of power and they are choosing in this case to, you know, I... Uh, this case was later settled, but I think it's, you know, almost has to be true that they were doing this, um, using their power to uh, not service certain communities because they're racist. This is a fascinating thing because as, as a libertarian, you would think that Connor would try to find a way to blame the state for this problem. Uh, of course, he is advocating for the state to step in against the tyranny of the majority in economic uh, situations that don't have to do with such discrimination. It's, it's a weird thing. I want, I'm curious if he believes like Rand Paul did at least back uh, a number of years ago when he was interviewed by Rachel Maddow, I believe, um, where he wasn't a fan of that provision in the Civil Rights Act that applied to private businesses. He was fine with the government being regulated and not being allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. But you know, capitalism and the invisible hand will really solve ultimately any problem uh, that racist capitalists who own businesses who want to discriminate, um, they'll, they're going to be punished by the market, really. People will vote with their wallets and everything will be fine. Um, well, I, I'm confused now. Does he want the government to step in or doesn't he? It seems, seems like a little muddled political philosophy he has. Yeah, I would guess that he, you know, he would certainly be supportive of, uh, you know, civil rights legislation and sort of forcing Donald Trump to not discriminate in, in rental policy. But, you know, this is a case in which, you know, the government is having to step in to deal with a, 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 the, the way in which capitalism allows wealthy people to grant them enormous power, you know, um, if you're rich, you can you can get away with a lot. And Absolutely. Um, yeah, so you know it it, it 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 makes an interesting contrast with someone like you know some of the more hard edged libertarian philosophers like uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, um, which know, is a great name by the way. It's yeah, a great name. yeah, it's, he sounds like a like Peter Rabbit's you know sort of deranged <laughs> cousin. Um. Yeah, don't don't throw me into the briar patch of of democracy. <laughs> but for for people who aren't aware, uh, this guy he's naturally, of course, he's a government employee. He's a professor, uh, <laughs> and, and he wow. argues that democracy is bad because it doesn't allow people to discriminate enough. And if you have a libertarian utopia, you will 
you will be able to just discriminate to your heart's content and create these sort of apartheid communities, which he says is like, that's great. That's the, that's the, the form of the good is living in like a, a company <laughs> town uh, where access to everything is defined, you know, according to like racist suppositions of whoever owns everything. Um. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of, so Ira Katz Nelson is a political scientist and he has this notion that businesses can be conceived of as private governments and, and authoritarian tyrannical ones at that. Yeah. And this is, this is certainly true insofar as their workers do not have any of the, the civil liberties uh, that citizens of our country have with respect to the government. Uh, you can regulate whether, you know, of course, uh, depending on what the laws of, of the country are, as much as possible, these private authoritarian governments can tell you how long you have to, to eat, when you can go to the bathroom, what you can wear, what you can say. They can fire you at will, et cetera, et cetera. But also they have unilateral decisions making over their own resources. So it's authoritarian in the sense they have complete control of um, you know, what they do with their capital, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this, um, I think, very clarifying contrast between in a country that has trillion-dollar companies like Apple, um, you know, monopolies in increasing across industries. Um, these private governments collectively are controlling so much of uh, the workday hours and what we can do with our time and what products and resources we have, how much they cost, et cetera, et cetera. So... This, however, seems to be Connor's vision of what freedom really is, is to give as much power to these private governments as possible. And that the real danger is that if you didn't have this strange system, you would have the people, the demos, right, in a democratic society is, is you know, Kratos is rule and demos is people, rule by the people. That would produce, you know, Islamophobic uh, policies that would produce no vegan milk. It's just, uh, let, let, can we tease out how he gets from A to B, how he thinks that for some reason these authoritarian private governments um, and the profit motive lead to true freedom, but socialism, because it's really democratic, would not have the constraints of the market and would lead to this kind of Stalinist state. Well, how, how does he get there? What's what, what's the the argument? Do you think? Yeah, it's it's very it's very strange because it's focused almost entirely on commodities. You know, like when when people are talking about discrimination, you know, they're usually talking about like, um, you know, I can't get a job, I can't live in this place. Uh, you know, the police are, are harassing, like shooting me, uh, yes. my, my community, um, you know, being thrown in prison on trumped up charges, you know, that's your real kind of, you know, you're talking about discrimination. That's your like real hardcore discrimination. And this is just like, well, you want to, you want a prayer mat, um, and you, you can't go buy one at, you know, w workers are us or whatever, um, because I, 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 maybe yeah. <laughs> the workers might not vote to produce enough of these. And so, you know, that's just like if if the if like like all commodity production is like subject to a majority vote, 
which is like, I think we can get into that a little bit later, but like, you know, that's sort of his, his dystopian vision, everything set by according to like direct democracy. Um, then it could be the case, certainly not impossible under that sort of scenario that, you know, there wouldn't be, you know, people wouldn't allocate enough, uh, hair products for African Americans, he says, or, or, you know, there wouldn't be enough sex toys or, uh, <laughs> vegan milk. Yes. Yes. And that's kind I, it's of very the t- beginning and ending because he doesn't say like. It's you know, so the, telling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so the, telling. The pinched imagination here, you know, like, like if, if, if Muslims had a shortage of prayer rugs in this country, that would be a massive improvement <laughs> from their current status. So, so first, first of all, it's a tremendous sign of the privilege operating here, right? That the conception of what oppression is and then correspondingly what freedom is has to do with whether you can buy a prayer rug. First, like the is- Islamic discrimination that is really pervasive is economic in that way. First of all, um, secondly, that lack of imagination really revolves around and maybe also explains why a libertarian becomes libertarian. This conception of um, the good being a matter of what you can purchase and what you can sell, whether you can accumulate profit for yourself and whether you can buy and consume commodities, which is, you know, extremely um, narrow view of what life is and also totally elides all those problems you talked about having to do with, um, especially for people of color, especially for the poor, uh, all kinds of problems related to whether you can find work, whether you're fired, whether you're assaulted, whether you're harassed, um, any number of um, traumas and grievances that harm people that have very little to do with operating in a consumer market. So it, it, it at once shows a reductionist view of what freedom is and what tyranny is. You know, tyranny is not having enough coca-cola options or something right you want only two flavors of coca-cola that's tyranny um but that but that i i think but i think that has to be born of the kind of privilege where you don't experience all these other traumas because you're in a privileged class white male doing well successful and so forth i i don't want to attribute too much to to connor specifically but just the the ideology overall is one that's so focused on these things um that it just i mean it must necessarily not have to worry about so many of the problems that operate in day-to-day life for so many people that this is, this is kind of like the problem that they want to engage with, you know, what, what, uh, what luxuries can I accumulate going back to the kind of the Lockean notion of what happiness is. Um, yeah. yeah, So uh, it's very telling. Yeah. You know, I think the pinched imagination is is a good way of describing it. You know, and Connor has written stuff about police abuses and, uh, you know, government surveillance that I think, you know, are like more or less on point. You know, so he's not completely blind to this sort of stuff. But when it comes to, you know, economic democracy, yeah, I mean, you just you just have this like, like this preposterous objection to it. Uh, to to the idea that that you know more democratic control over the economy might might somehow harm vegan people, um, you know, I, in a way I think that. Go ahead. No, it's it's important that we point that out just to to not be unfair to to Connor. Um, he he, as a libertarian, of course, 
really focuses uh, a lot of his writing on civil liberties. Uh, and it's interesting, though, I, I saw a tweet not that long ago from him about uh, socialists uh, are as bad or socialists, like other groups, are not very good on civil liberties. Basically, only libertarians are really good on civil liberties. Um, but when it comes to evaluating whether some democratic socialism is good for our democracy, it's a, it's a strange focus on economic issues, um, which kind of goes back to the genealogy of the political philosophy of, of uh, libertarianism, which is to separate out economic issues from political ones. Um, it's, it's kind of its own thing. You know, we can talk about the economy here, and then over here we can talk about civil liberties. And I think that's the problem, really. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. And this may be, I mean, I think, you know, I think Connor is clearly wrong about this. And like, who who is most concerned about, um, you know, warrantless uh, surveillance and drone strikes and, you know, police brutality and so forth? Like, it's the people in the, the left. Yeah, Congressional Progressive Caucus and stuff. Not everyone, but like, that's where you find the people. You know, there's like that one guy from Michigan was Justin Amash. He's like the only Republican, basically, who's actually sticks to these sort of libertarian principles. Um, but at any rate, so I think this is this is maybe a good point to like actually talk more concretely about Connor's objection here um, about, you know, how the economy would be organized. And I I think that I mean. I'm not exactly sure what the what the Jacobin guys would say about this, but I, I think the the ma- majority tendency amongst uh, socialists in this country would would not say that you you literally have to have a democratic vote about every single like commodity production decision. Um, you know, people are generally not talking anything close to that level of fine grained control over uh, you know the the production decisions it that instead it's about like broad strokes harnessing of the means of production and in particular when it comes to markets i would i would argue that the that the majority tendency is to say that not that markets need to go forever in every circumstance you can't have any markets at all it's instead to say markets have to be subordinated to the 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 broader needs of society and so insofar as markets uh, are a decently good way of allocating things you can let them stand or like maybe you can have some like regulations here or there to prevent uh you know people being poisoned or or whatever but then in certain cases you could say like well you know markets and oil futures and in property rights for uh, extracting coal and gas like those got to go. Those are, those are done. We're just going to delete them and <laughs> run those companies out of business entirely. Um, right. And so, yeah, like in the sort of socialist vision of utopia, you know, to say like, all right, so we have a full on welfare state blown out. There's basically no poverty. Um, and, uh, you know, you have mass unionization, you know, sectoral bargaining. So wages are really high. And, uh, you know, people have a lot more money than they than they used to. Uh, and so um, in that level, you know, like people will have a lot more capability to buy the things that they need than they currently do. 
in which you know the, there is a high poverty rate directly caused by the fact that uh, capitalism in its raw state only gives out money to workers and owners of capital um and uh then you know you just say like okay you know maybe we're uh we're going to like regulate certain things. Climate change is going to be a big one. Um, but when you're talking about like some simple commodities, like uh, like like textiles and so forth, like, okay, you know, the workers making those things are going to be making a lot more than they did. Um, you know, you're going to have overtime hours, no more sweatshop labor in the United States, at least. And yeah. uh, that's you know. that's the real objection. I, I think so. So it's unfortunate that he attacked a straw person, if you will, straw man, straw person, because there are trade-offs and it's interesting to talk about the trade-offs, but, but what they're not are this, because it's not so much that you get the centralized committee and you vote on whether we should produce a prayer rug. Instead, it's supposed to be a democratic check, as you say, subordinating capitalism and markets to democratic control. And so if it turns out actually that, as you mentioned before, there are racist consequences to the way that the market is operating, then democracy the people will decide to say that's not okay anymore, okay? Um, and so, you know, if there are not enough prayer rugs because of Islamophobia, that might be something that socialists would want to address and say, okay, well, the market is, is not working out here. Um, but more importantly, because of the, the things you mentioned on the collective bargaining, because uh, I, would, I would hope that the socialists would push to ensure more leisure time, uh, lower hours, uh, more money for, for the masses, for everyone, Look, does Connor think that it, it, it requires a, a specialist capitalist mode of production in order to make a prayer rug? I, I imagine the millions and millions of Muslims that exist, some of them might want to make their own prayer rugs if they had the time and the ability to purchase their own. Like we could go back to a time when there wasn't this hyper specialization division of labor where everyone is just, you know, doing one little thing for, for eight hours plus a day. Right. It's trying to actually undo that form of production so that there's more freedom and, and more possibilities that I think Connor is willing to imagine. Yeah. And I, I think you would, you know, you, under in that situation, yeah, where people make a lot more money and they have a lot more free time, you would see people just doing that as sort of like, you know, like that type of thing where you're uh, trying to make something that has like a particular meaning for you or whatever, rather than just buying the cheapest uh, it's this kind of it's this kind of amazing thing if you think about it. Actually, if people yeah. have money and if they have money and time, and and their faith is is so devout, but oh my god, if some like white male doesn't form a, a new corporation to produce prayer rugs, what am I going to do? I guess I have to give up on Islam. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an unbe it's an unbe it's an unbelievable picture of what the human being. Uh, will do and then the creativity and the lack of creativity and the lack of will <laughs> like just to yes. rely you know but then I think at the same time you still would have a big market and um, sure you know these sort of simple textiles and and stuff it would just be like you know t-shirts are now it would I think it would it would be the market would be rebalanced slightly you know to where where things cost more but they last longer you know it wouldn't be so many people yes, trapped exactly. in that 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 situation as they are now buying like the cheapest thing right. and it wears out really quickly, but you can't finance the For more expensive kind. And 
so on and so forth. But like you, you would you wouldn't you wouldn't have the forced obsolescence. You wouldn't have um, you know a hundred thousand different varieties of something that you only need a few different options for. Uh, so yeah, this goes back to the actual. So the actual trade-offs are this: if you, in your weird fetish, want to have you know a hundred thousand shoes or something like that, uh, and socialism reduces your ability to kind of exploit labor in order to uh, do that, um, yeah, a socialist society oriented to the common good might not think it's appropriate that you, as an individual, have to have. And maybe shoes is a bad example. More likely, something where your desire as an individual is, say, harming the environment or, or some, some collective good uh, or public good is being damaged by your individual desire. It's true that those individuals and those desires that go against the common good are going to be limited in a way, right? Yeah, probably. And things which are clearly, like, clearly, you know, you would say in a, in a market system like underpriced, like taking flights on an airplane, um, the, the price of that would have to go up a lot. But, you know, I think also also at the same time, it's important to emphasize, you know, we're talking about democracy. We're talking about an ordinary, you know, sort of democratic state. And of course, as part of that, you know, whether you're talking about like putting this through under the American Constitution or like putting in a new constitution somewhere else, you know, all this would, of course, have you know, the strict Bill of Rights protecting every type of, you know, individual identity um, and, you know, strong protections for religious practice and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, just like, you know, like read the South African Constitution. Um, and at the same time, you know, you, you spread out economic power um, much more widely throughout the population. I think that, that those those sorts of civil liberties protections will become much more meaningful and much more effective because, you know, there, there's so much, um, that a lot, a lot of civil, civil liberties protections in this country, especially at the local level are more or less a dead letter, you know, because like the, the police will just, you know, find some poor person, a poor black person, and just harass them illegally. And there's really, no, you know, it's like, what are you going to do, sue us? You know, he's like, you don't have the money for that. Or even if they do catch the attention of the ACLU, you know, it's like a long, expensive litigation, and they're totally overmatched by the scale of the problem. Whereas if you make society much more equal, and people have much more access to the type of, uh, you know, communities and importantly money that allows people to mount a defense against that sort of thing um you know cl clearly it's not 100 percent effective but it would be a lot more effective than what we have now which is just like rampant um unconstitutional abuses of of you know poor black people and and uh transgender people and you know every every all the things we hear about every day um, no, that's right. That's absolutely true. You know, yeah. I, I think it, it, it's worth, um, as, as we uh, wrap up here, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, in ancient Greece, um, the word democracy came from, like I said before, kratos ruled demos by the people. And there was this notion that in history, certain democracies turned into tyrannies because the passions of the people uh, overcame them and uh, they weren't properly formed in 
their desires. And so that led to tyranny, essentially. And there's a cycle of regimes that Plato talks about. But then when Aristotle breaks down the different forms of government, he has not the usual breakdown, one, few, and many, which is, you know, monarchy, uh, oligarchy, or uh, democracy. He has six forms, and there are three good and three bad, depending on the spirit of the people and the spirit of the regime. And there's this kind of isomorphism between the people and, and their desires and, and their constitution is, is, and their character as human beings, and uh, what that translates to in aggregate, right? So he called the bad forms tyranny, and right, for, for rule by one with a, a person who's oriented to his own or her own good rather than the common good. Uh, the oligarchy, uh, rule by the few that's oriented to their own private interests, which usually is about money. And democracy is what he called the bad form, which was about rule by the many, rule by the poor, where the poor and the many were all oriented to their individual private interests. On yeah. the other side, on the other side, however, you had uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and what he could be translated into English as polity. The three good forms of each of those, where the common good in each instance is what was um, being served. Depending, the different there are different forms of government, but all were oriented towards the common good. And I think democratic socialism is like a polity, according to Aristotle, where although it's ruled by the many the end to which that process and that form of government is oriented is toward the common good, where it's not just this aggregation of selfish individuals, which is actually what capitalism promotes. And so I can see yeah. if you're a capitalist and a libertarian, if you, if you combine right that profit motive, that selfish, individualistic, atomistic perspective with right? Rule by the many. I can see how you'd be afraid of tyranny, but that's a misunderstanding of socialism and how it's actually oriented to the collective and the common good. And you subordinate your private interests and put it within the context of what's good for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And in a, not in an utterly self-denying sense, of course, everyone, you know, you, you do have legitimate rights and expectations, you know, but to just say like, we're, we're embedding this in a, overall framework that's supposed to protect everyone it's not just like grab what you can right yeah it's it's agency in communion agency and communion it, the the common good it neither uh, annihilates uh, interest and 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 the good of the individual um and does not subsume the individual completely but it's neither an aggregation of simply individual interests so it's it's a good it, you know relation between self and other i would think that's good. I think that's a good place to stop. Good. Good stuff, my friend. Thank okay. you. Okay.